This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. A lot of vaccine news focuses around slow distribution, concerns about variants, why people aren't lining up to get them. We do have some positive news this time. They say the AstraZeneca vaccine not only prevents people from getting sick, but could help substantially reduce transmission. The CDC director makes some provocative comments about schools reopening. We'll tell you what she said. Doctors might be more reluctant now to offer COVID testing to patients. We'll explain why later on. And we will check in with the COVID long hauler to see how he's holding up. If you've gotten your first vaccine, you might be excited. We'll tell you why you might not want to post it all over Instagram. The pandemic has disrupted Hollywood, and now it's impacting the awards season. And the Super Bowl is Sunday, the pandemic making it one for the history books. Let's start with the AstraZeneca news. Dr. Paul Sachs is clinical director of the Infectious Disease Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Doctor, the news is promising. What is it exactly? Well, one of the things they were able to do in this study was measure not just who got sick from COVID-19, but who acquired the infection. So they were able, they had the people who were in the study take swabs on themselves and submit those on a regular basis, even if they had no symptoms. So they were able to show uh, both that the vaccine reduced the likelihood of people getting sick from COVID-19 and also reduced the likelihood that they got the infection from the virus. And why this is important is it probably tells us something we were expecting all along, but it proves that that the the vaccines will reduce the likelihood of someone passing it on to someone else. doesn't eliminate the risk, but it reduces the risk. How close are we to saying that? Is there more study out there that needs to be done? Well, I'm going to tell you that I've, I've suspected that this would be the case for a while because most of our vaccines do this. They do reduce the risk of people passing viruses and bacteria onto others, but not all do. So it's good to see this this evidence. So I think I think the take home message is that the vaccines reduce the risk. They don't eliminate it. And while uh, cases are still very high as they are right now, people should still be careful, wear mask, social distancing, et cetera. Now, I, I, I took note that twice you used the plural. You said vaccines. And, and of course, the study is just about one, the AstraZeneca one. But uh, are you fairly confident that, say, the Pfizer and Moderna ones, which, as you know, are very different technology from the AstraZeneca one, uh, would do the same thing? Well, we only have preliminary evidence from those. Um, in the Moderna study, they did a baseline swab in people who entered the study, and they did it again at week four. And this is before the vaccine, of course, had a had full chance to kick in because the booster dose hadn't been received. And already by week four, there was a lower rate of positives in the people who had no symptoms at all. So that suggests that these vaccines would do it also. It's not proof, but it suggests it. So overall, I am optimistic that this will be the case. Um, And then I want to bring up again that there are other vaccines where, in fact, the entire reason we prescribe them is to reduce the risk of transmission. If you all know about this, the, the school entry requirements and the rubella vaccine, I mean, the reason we recommend that vaccine is so that kids don't pass it on to pregnant women. So, so anyway, I think this is good news. Uh, I hope it's recapitulated in other vaccine studies, and let's just see what the data show. Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director, Infectious Disease Clinic, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and uh, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. We like good news. The new CDC director says schools can safely reopen even if teachers aren't vaccinated, but 
Is she right? The teachers' unions seem to think differently. Do they have a point? Dr. Jennifer Blumenthal-Barbie, Associate Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Baylor College of Medicine. So, Doctor, what does the medical data suggest about the school reopenings? So I'll first qualify by saying I am a medical ethicist. Um, So I think about this topic a lot from the ethics perspective, but I have reviewed the CDC view on this. And I think the reason this is coming out now is there was a pretty major publication on this topic last week published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they collected data from over 13,000 school districts, um, some of which were fully back in person and some were hybrid in the fall. And they looked at a bunch of different cases or examples and data, um, and that's how they reached their conclusion that there's little evidence that schools have contributed to increased community transmission. And a couple of examples they gave that really stand out, for example, they looked at 11 districts in North Carolina with over 90,000 students and staff, and they found only 32 cases of infections that were acquired in a school. They also um, looked at a collection of schools in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin. Um, These cases were about 5,000 students and 600 staff. These schools had very high mask adherence, but they only found seven cases of in-school transmission. So, and they looked at kind of similar studies coming out of Europe. So that'll just give you a flavor of kind of where they're coming from when they draw this conclusion um, that they have come out and made statements about over the past week. We've also kind of had some thinking all the way along, though, that maybe the schools are are no more dangerous or even less dangerous than the community at large. So it's the teachers that might not get it from being at school, from physically working, but you get it out when you do go shopping or when you do go to dinner or when you see somebody inside. It's coming in because community spread. It doesn't necessarily mean that a school campus being open is some kind of uh, vector. That's exactly right. And that's what the the data showed that the cases, I mean, there were like over 100 cases in each of those examples, but they trace those back to community activities, a lot of indoor gatherings, family gatherings, things like that, not the schools themselves. There are a couple of exceptions. For example, they, um, they saw that there were some increased concerns and issues around athletics, indoor athletic activities, such as a wrestling match, they, they saw an outbreak there. Um, so those are kind of extracurricular activities associated with schools, but not part of the school day itself, as long as the safety measures are in place. Well, the, the fact that we're even having to have this discussion and that there is even a debate, isn't it because that we as a society have, have still not yet decided where our priorities are with, with vaccines that are still rather scarce, right? I mean, we still haven't decided, do we want to give them to people who are most likely to get seriously ill and die? Do we want to give them to people who are going to help get the economy kickstarted? Do do we want to give them to teachers first? Because if you can't get kids back into the school, their parents can't can't go to work. If we could figure that out, then this debate wouldn't exist, right? I think part of it is if we could figure that out and if we could ramp up vaccine supply and distribution so that this didn't have to be an issue or we're having to figure out the prioritization. So teachers are considered essential workers, so they are prioritized in terms of most uh, allocation schemas after, for example, frontline health workers um, and people at maybe increased risk of severe illness because of Uh, you know, older age, for example. But teachers, like all other essential workers, do receive some priority status. It's just that there are so many 
essential workers, um, and there are, are so few vaccines or um, and and not rapid enough distribution at this point. Dr. Jennifer Blumenthal-Barbie, Associate Director, Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Baylor College of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. If you need a COVID test, there are community clinics set up across the country. They're mostly free, but you can also get tested at your doctor's office. Thing is, doctors are starting to become less inclined to offer the tests because insurance companies and Medicare are reimbursing the doctors at reduced rates. Dr. Larry Levitt, Executive Vice President for Health Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Doctor, take us through some of this. Uh, if you're a patient and, and you're going to get a, a COVID test, it, it's free to you, whether you have insurance uh, or not. But the problem is trying to find a place where you can actually get a test. And what's happening is insurers are squeezing uh, healthcare providers, particularly doctor's offices with these rapid tests, uh, and really clamping down on how much they're willing to pay uh, for the tests. And, and that's making it hard for, for doctor's offices to provide the tests at all. But isn't there a federal law that would, if insurance companies don't want to pay, isn't the federal government supposed to pick up the tab? Well, not quite that simple. If, if you know, if, if it's a healthcare provider, let's say a doctor that's in the insurer's network, uh, you know, the, the amount that the doctor gets paid for, for anything, including COVID tests, is subject to negotiations between the insurer and the doctor. Uh, although, you know, negotiations is, is uh, maybe too generous a word. I mean, often it's a take it or leave it kind of, kind of proposition. Um, so, you know, if this isn't profitable or, you know, if a doctor's office can't break even on providing these tests, especially these rapid tests, uh, then they're just, they're just not going to do it. The only price we see is the one up front, and it, it seems like we've got we've got the two categories, right, which we explained earlier. You get to the city or the county, uh, they still have those sites, and you give them your insurance card, and they say, no, it's going to be free anyways, but we might try and bill your insurance. Don't worry about anything. You'll get an email in a couple of days. Or you go to one of these other places, you know, the walk-in or your doctor, and then it's like 100 or 130 bucks a pop. Yeah, and it, and it really depends on, on why you're getting the test. Uh, and that, that's also been a, a bit of a dispute uh, with insurance companies. Uh, you know, the federal government does say that the test should be free to, to patients, uh, but those are tests that are medically necessary. So if you're showing symptoms, for example, insurers have been really resistant to pay for tests where, you know, maybe you've come in contact or you fear you've come in contact with someone uh, who has COVID uh, or, you know, you're going to a small family gathering, you're traveling to uh, you know, visit an, an aging parent, and you want to get a test to, to be sure. Those, those are not necessarily covered by insurance at all. Which, which is sort of striking because one of the ways to help uh, mitigate this absolute disaster of a pandemic in this country anyway would be to be fairly lenient for people who legitimately fear that they may have been in contact with somebody or they know they've been in contact and they may be asymptomatic, but that's how it's spread largely by asymptomatic people. So it's puzzling why insurance companies aren't being more willing to fund those kinds of tests. No, I mean, from a public health perspective uh, and just from getting getting our, our lives back, uh, we should be testing people uh, a lot, certainly a lot more than than we are now. Uh, anyone who kind of has any inkling that they, they might have been exposed, um, we should make it easy and cheap for them uh, to, to get tested. And, you know, this is sort of a conflict between our 
profit-driven healthcare system and uh, and the goals of, of public health. Uh, we've seen it with testing from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and we're starting to see it with with vaccines as well. I mean, we, we should be making these vaccines as easy as possible to get, especially for uh, people uh, in, in vulnerable groups. And uh, that, that hasn't been true yet. Dr. Larry Levitt, Executive Vice President, Health Policy, Kaiser Family Foundation. Scott Cohn was caught up in that first big wave of infections a little less than a year ago in the New York City area. His dad died and he got really sick. So sick, he's still feeling the effects of the coronavirus. Last time we talked to him, a lot of coughing still. Scott is back with us. Scott, how are you feeling? I'm doing, I'm doing well. <clears throat> um, uh, I like to tell people that, you know, for me, I'm 100%. Um, obviously, I still have some issues, but there's nothing that I cannot do now that, uh, you know, I couldn't do before. So I'm good <clears throat> with that. Uh, you know, I'm still dealing with, obviously, this cough, which, uh, <clears throat> you know, is is ongoing now for months. Um, GI issues. Um, I still don't have feeling in, <clears throat> in uh, you know, uh, part of my foot. Um, you know, things like that that probably are going to stay with me for life, which is, you know, is given a choice between A or, or B. Uh, you know, I'm happy to have these problems and be here talking to you guys. But uh, nobody knows what the future is going to hold for, for, you know, people who have long-haul symptoms like myself. Uh, are these going to progress into other things moving forward? Are they going to stay how they are? Are they going to maybe get better or go away? Yeah, nobody knows, right? So I was going to ask that. Your doctor says what when, when you go and check up with him? Or are you involved with any of these? You know, there are groups and, and clinics getting going trying to kind of follow the long haulers and, and see what can be done for them. But, I mean, as you were just saying a second ago, the jury is still out on whether some of this ever comes back for you. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I'm lucky with <clears throat> my choice of, of, uh, of physicians um, I've been most of my adult life involved in emergency medicine. Um, so the doctors that I deal with really are, are specialists and they're top in their respective fields. Um, <clears throat> I'm lucky for me that two out of uh, two of them out of the three or four, uh, their family members are actually scientists and researchers working on COVID vaccines and, and COVID itself. So I, I'm getting a lot of information from my physicians back and forth. Uh, and I'm there. I'm involved in a lot of the surveys as well, uh, you know, that that uh, hospitals and clinics and, and even the CDC and whatnot's putting out. Um, but, you know, every time I talk to them, you know, it's really the same answer. <clears throat> We're seeing a lot more of this. We're not seeing this at all. And at the end of the day, we just don't know. Scott, is, is, how much of uh, your lingering symptoms are directly COVID, and is the cough from COVID, or is it from the ventilator that you were on for a while, or, or both? Yeah, the, the cough is is not directly related to COVID. Um, it is a side effect. It's a fairly common side effect. Uh, severe reflux, or or which is what I have, or some people have really bad sinusitis that's just develops from being on a ventilator for long periods of time um you know it's uh, it's this is just kind of if you imagine a, a cut on your elbow every time you move your elbow you open that scab for me it's on my vocal cords and my <clears throat> and my trachea so every time i talk or do something it kind of 
opens it up again and, and heals, you know, slows down the healing process. I, I'm sure people are are wondering, uh, do you you don't cough when you does it wake you up when when you're asleep or can you sleep through it and and not have to cough 24 seven? No, honestly, if if I don't talk, uh, I generally don't cough. Not more than anybody else. It's just the aggravation from the the air, you know, passing through the vocal cords as I speak. It's gotten a lot better. <clears throat> um, you know, and I'm still on medicine. They're still treating that. Uh, you know, as far as the the GI issues, uh, it's it's one of the larger symptoms that people are complaining of. But they just they they don't know <clears throat> they don't know how to stop it. They don't really know 100% why it happened. <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a vascular virus, and it really it can do anything. Scott Cohen, COVID survivor, Nassau County, outside New York City. Scott, thanks for coming back and, and talking to us. Uh, we're glad that, on the most part, you are feeling better. You can do yeah. what you did before. Coming up after this short break, you might want to think twice about posting certain vaccine pictures on the Internet. People who uh, get a COVID vaccine shot the first time get a card. They need that card to get the second shot. Some people so happy about it, they post pictures of the card on social media. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talks to Adam Levin, founder of Cyber Scouts, about why that might not be a good idea. It's a bad idea because in order for someone to masquerade as if they are you, they have to know you. And one of the ways they know you is by following you on social media seeing what you post, and when you post things that have your full name and your birthday, as well as information about where you got your vaccine, that gives them little pieces of the puzzle that they can combine with other information on your social media posts. And as an example, in Great Britain, people were caught selling fake vaccine cards on eBay and TikTok because they were able to see what people posted and then make uh, fake representations of them that looked real enough to get people in. So th these are the kinds of things you really have to be careful of. There was a story a, a few years ago that at the Democrat National Convention, uh, one woman was so excited about plans to improve Medicare that she basically put her Medicare card up smack in front of the camera lens. And these were the days when your Medicare number was basically your Social Security number in a letter. And then you have young people who post, I just got this credit card. I just got this debit card. Look at my new license. And they don't realize that these are ways that you give hackers and identity thieves the information they need to wreak havoc in your life. Kind of naive, right? Where people, they're just not thinking about it. They're excited in the moment and they're not thinking that there might be bad people who get these pictures. Absolutely. And again, hackers succeed on distraction. And so when you're really thinking about something, you're joyful about something, you might click on the wrong link, you might take the wrong picture, you might show different things that are in your home and by mistake also your home address. And if you don't uh, uh, disable location services on your phone, you might actually have that information on the digital photograph. So now they see what you've got, where you've got it, and they can figure out what to use to take it from you and haul it away. So what are some safer ways to do this? If you want to celebrate online with all your friends, what are some safer ways to do it? Well, the safe way is just to say, I'm very excited. I got my first shot of vaccine. You don't really need to show them your card. 
And and remember, any information you give could give somebody the opportunity to launch a phishing attack against you looking for more information. So if you say, for instance, I just got my first shot, they may contact you as if they're their state health authority or your municipal health authority and say, oh, by the way, we've moved up your second shot. Please click here for the details. So again, less is more. Just like on social media, I would say to people, lie like a superhero. I mean, Clark Kent doesn't running around posting that he's Superman, nor is Bruce Wayne about Batman. And it's the same even just a question, and questions and answers on security questions. They don't need to know your mother's real maiden name. They don't need to know the real high school that you went to. Uh, the key thing is be creative, but don't be so creative you can't remember. It, it's an understatement to say that 2020 was a down year for the TV and movie industry. Well, the Golden Globe nominations came out, and uh, they're being slammed by most critics. Steve Pond is an awards critic, pundit for The Wrap. So, Steve, were there more misses than hits over this weird year? Well, you know, in a, in a way, it's kind of nice that in a year in which everything is turned upside down, we still have the Golden Globes to make fun of because there's, <laughs> there's Yay. you know, it's, it's the one constant that, uh, you know, in, in this last year. Yes. I mean, Gather around your radios, everyone. Yes, they, they still make dumb choices, um, you know, and, and they try sometimes to you know, to move in the right direction. You know, last year they heard that they didn't nominate enough female directors. So this year they nominated three of them at once when, when they'd only nominated seven in the first 77 years. Um, but, you know, then they forgot to nominate movies by black filmmakers. It's like, you know, oops. So, uh, so will, we, will you get into trouble uh, if you sort of give us your view on some of the real like stinky ones that they ended up giving nominations to no i mean i mean for me there's there's the one absolute jaw dropper it's like it's really rare when i hear a, a batch of nominations for a major award and i have to look up what one of the best picture nominees is <laughs> but for you know for best musical or comedy they nominated a movie called magic i had never heard of magic so I, you know, I quickly did some research and found out that it was directed by the singer Sia. Um, it was released in Australia. It got terrible reviews. It's apparently offensive to autistic people. Wow. It's coming out next week on IMAX for one day, and then it's going to VOD. But, you know, it it's what knocked out On the Rocks and, and the 40-year-old version and Emma and, and I mean, hell, Eurovision Song Contest and Bill and Ted Face the Music would have been better. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's you know, and, and that's the movie that, that kept Meryl Streep from getting her, you know, like 80th Golden Globe nomination no. because because Kate Hudson came in and got it instead. Um, anything good? What should we celebrate? Well, I, I think you can, you know, you can celebrate the fact that... Um, you know, even the stopped clock is right a couple times a day. And, and you know, they nominated some good movies. I mean, you know, I, I think that Nomadland and Trial of Chicago 7 and, and you know, and Mank and, and all of that are, are good. Promising Young Woman is, is a pretty adventurous choice for the Golden Globes. So, you know, good but, for them on that. Okay, but, but here's what I'm kind of wondering about. And we were talking about it at our morning meeting for planning the show. Going ahead, 
what are they going to do like this year for the Oscars? You, you know, I, I'm in the uh, Directors Guild, so I get these the sort of daily <laughs> uh, deluge of uh, screeners to watch. And I keep opening up the package looking, and I'm thinking, what is, what is this? I've never heard of it. I haven't heard right. of half the people in these movies. Uh, I read the description, and I go, yeah, I don't want to watch that one. What are they <laughs> going to do for an Academy Award? Um, it's it's going to be the Netflix Academy Awards this year. Um, wow. You know, I mean, they dominated the Golden Globes. Um, they have a lot of the the big ones for the Oscars. And yeah, it'll it'll be a group of films that premiered um, streaming. You know, the Oscars are allowing those this year, and and it will be you know the ratings will be terrible regardless of of how they can do it, whether they can do it in person or not. But that's what there was in 2020 was was movies that went direct to streaming and everybody said oh, it's all right for this year you can qualify so um it's yeah it's going to be a, a weird strange oscars that isn't really going to feel like an oscars but it's it's all they can do steve pond awards critic for the rap the Super Bowl is more than an event it's basically an unofficial holiday in the US people plan parties around it Advertisers pump millions of dollars into commercials, and everyone knows which team won, even if they didn't watch the game. Parties highly discouraged this year. The stadium only allowing 22,000 fans. Hasn't been much of a celebration so far. Lee Steinberg is with us, player super agent, founder of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment, also represents Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. So, Lee, this Super Bowl is uh, unique, to say the least. The Super Bowl has become a convention of Americana. Big business, big sports, big politics, big entertainment, all coming together, a confluence of all those groups. And you can get so much business done. I can find an owner and I can find a general manager and I can find a coach and just run into them. And uh, it's where we ordinarily would be selling uh, our new rookie class. Uh, we have one player. Um uh, Tulanoa Hufanga from USC is going to be a high draft pick. Normally, you'd be interacting, you'd be introducing them to people. This is where you form endorsements, all sorts of things happen. So it is a real loss, but, um, uh, you know, we'll get through it and next year we're home. You know, you just actually raised a really interesting thing that I guess a lot of people haven't really given much thought about. You know, they're, they're thinking about, well, how is the Super Bowl going to look different this year? But what you're saying is that it's really going to have an impact on the way the game is going to look maybe in years to come because of how it affects people like yourself. Well, so remember that city would be filled with hundreds of thousands of extra people. There are only 22,000 seats as opposed to 100,000 or 80,000. And 5,000 of them are going to um, first responders and people uh, who've been working in the pandemic. So what it means is that the tickets for normal fans are just not there. And the pricing of it, it will be totally insane. Uh, a $1,000 ticket will go for $10,000. And that's if you could find one. So normally that it really hurt the Tampa economy to not have those endless parties and endless hotels and everything else. And it's also a branding event. This is the premier marketing event in American sports. 
So, for example, uh, if if a quarterback plays well, he's got the opportunity or a high profile player and he interviews well to transcend the narrow genre of hardcore sports fans and become a national figure. Hmm. If you have so much press there and then there's the press coming out of it with the where you're on Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert and uh, Ellen and, and it 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 transcends that narrow genre of hardcore sports fans to encompass the whole country. What do you think of the matchup? I mean, we got your guy versus the guy that seems like has, at this point, always been around. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's about as plastic as you can get. I mean, you have potentially the greatest quarterback of all time uh, with Brady, this is his 10th Super Bowl. Now, we have a player on Tampa named uh, Ronald Jones, who's a running back who went to USC. So I'm going to root for tremendous offense. Um, but what you have in Patrick is someone who, in adversity, he's thrown a couple interceptions, the game is getting out of hand, the crowd's starting to boo, has the ability to compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, tune out extraneous factors and elevate his play in those situations to take a team to and through victories. So um, I'm betting on Patrick and rooting for Ronald. Lee Steinberg, sports super agent. Lee, um, it's different, but hey, have fun, okay? Unless you've never left the house, you've probably interacted with others in the pandemic. And if you have, it's likely both of you were wearing masks. So did the masks make the conversation more of a challenge when it came to understanding what the other person was saying? If the answer is no, that is in line with a new study from UC Davis. It finds wearing a face mask doesn't impact the ability to communicate. People were recorded saying the same sentences. One person wore a face mask, the other didn't. Listeners were then asked to figure out which speaker was wearing the mask. When someone spoke normally, others had no problem understanding the person. When people spoke slowly and clearly wearing a face mask actually made it easier for others to understand. The only time people had trouble understanding others wearing a face mask is when the masked person used a high-pitched emotional voice, like the kind used to talk to cats and dogs. How how do you talk to cats and dogs? I mean, like, hi, dog. Does that work? A little little bit more. Hi, dog. There you go. Hi, dog. We'll we'll workshop this and and come back tomorrow. Hi, cat. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Hi, Snake.